Well, good evening, everybody. It's a blessing to be back. Uh, we were on vacation last week in, uh, in the beautiful state of Idaho in 103, 106 degree weather. It was just so, yeah, sweltering. And in a labor of love, I was able to, I had the privilege and honor of marrying my aunt off. I had to make sure I, I said that to somebody, I married my aunt, and it wasn't the right vernacular, but <laughs> I married off my aunt, uh, who has been so near and dear to my heart for so many years. She's, she's been like a second mother to me, actually. And uh, so to be able to marry her in 103 degree heat in the backyard was awesome. And so we did the uh, Reader's Digest Bridge version and uh, I think I got it done in under 20 minutes, so, something like that. So anyway, uh, but it's so, such a blessing to be back. I think, you know, once uh, my wife's uh, family has a saying, it's the guest and the corpse begin to stink after three days. I don't know if you've heard that saying, but after, after a short time, you just want to get back home. You just want to start uh, sleeping in your bed again and being around familiar surroundings. It's good to travel, but it's always a blessing to be back home. And so it is a blessing to be back with you guys. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 21 kind of a tight timeline today, ambitious. We're going to finish the rest of the chapter, uh, get us through chapter four so we can get on to the baptisms. We don't want to rush God's word, but uh, we also want to make sure that we have time for our baptisms and our fellowship afterwards. So um, the church in Corinth is just, uh, it, it is a challenge to say the least right now for the Apostle Paul. Uh, lots of things going on that have been reported to him that probably weren't in his mind when he established the church uh, and, and spent 18 months there. In Acts 18, you can read, he spent 18 months planting this church, raising these people up in the word of God, planting them and, and feeding them. And then he moves on. He gets this report that all of these things are starting to happen. One of these major areas that need correction, need addressing is the divisions, the factions that have begun to form within the church. People started supporting supporting or venerating, exalting certain teachers within the church. Apollos, I'm of Peter, I am of uh, Paul. And as a result of that, they started creating these factions. And then uh, those that were still servants of Christ, still doing a great work for the Lord, were, were then being now challenged in, in their uh, service. And so it was creating these divisions and factions. It was all a result of their immaturity, their lack of spiritual growth. It was the root of the problem. Jealousy started to begin, strife started to occur, and then these divisions and factions began to form. And so Paul is addressing this in chapters one through four. He's going to move on to five, chapters five and six. And there's some, you know, some kind of adult material in chapters five and six in terms of what he has to address there. But we're going to finish up the, this area of, of the factions that he's uh, addressing, these divisions that had started to occur. So last Sunday, Pastor Eric covered verses one through five. If you weren't able to be in service on Sunday uh, and you haven't checked it out online, I highly recommend you doing so or maybe grabbing the CD on the way out. But Paul was reiterating that those in the ministry are just servants of Christ. They're stewards of the mysteries of God. This isn't a, a position of high status. In, in previous chapters, he said it was like a table waiter. A diakonos is like a table waiter. He, he himself classifies himself as a doulos or a bondservant, one who is willingly serving Christ. And, and, and in this chapter, uh, he's talking about a, a, like an under rower, somebody who's just moving the boat along, but shouldn't have any status, shouldn't have any notoriety at all. And, and, and he begins to say that though you maybe start to judge me, it, it really is of no consequence to me. My accountability, my responsibility is to Jesus Christ and him alone. He says, your judgment of me has very little value there in verses three and four. Basically, I'm not losing any sleep as to what you think of me or when you examine me. It's a small thing in my eyes. 
He not only says that, he says, I don't even really self-evaluate myself. I don't really kind of take a self-inventory because at times we can even justify our own decisions and our own uh, courses of action and make, them, make ourselves believe that we are on the right path and the right course. He says, the one who examines me is the Lord. And then he says, Christ and him alone will bring to light all that we've done, all the motivations of our heart, all the reasons why we've done the things we've done. Christ will lay all of that bare in the day of his return, and it will all come out in the end, all come out in the wash. He is the righteous judge. He is the one that is able to do that rightly, justly, and perfectly. So the final judge is the Lord. The final praise will be from God himself. So therefore, I'm not really worried about how you view me, how you esteem me, how you judge me. It's of little consequence to me. So he continues now in verses 6 and 7. And I titled this particular passage from 6 on through 21, sort of, it's, it's a reality check. Paul is going to be very firm with these believers, and he's doing it from a place of, of a fatherly love. We'll see that here in, in the scriptures. And he's doing it to course correct them. Their, their thinking, their understanding of where they are is, is unfortunately misguided. They think they're in a certain place. They think they're in a lofty position in a place of superiority. He's going to correct them in their thinking, and he's going to do that through his own ministry as an apostle, and he's going to ask them to imitate him. It's, it's a very powerful set of scriptures. Here we go, verse 6 and 7. Now these things, brothers and sisters, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos on your account, so that it is in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who considers you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? So Paul is saying, I'm not teaching you these kind of abstract, hard to grasp, hard to understand concepts or principles in isolation. I'm applying these very same principles to myself and to Apollos. We're using these very same things. I'm going to use my, my life and my ministry as a personal illustration as these guiding principles. I'm not highly esteeming some over others. I'm not, I'm not putting somebody on a pedestal at the expense of another servant in Christ. We are not to exalt one servant and then despise another. Paul then says, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go or exceed what is written. And that phrase really, really uh, struck me in studying these, this portion of Scripture. Because this is a direct reference to the Old Testament scriptures. If we remember back when Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was tempted by the devil, each time the devil came to him with a different scripture, correct? And what was his response? It is written. And then he would refute the devil with the correct scripture reference. It is written. We are not to exceed or go beyond what is written in the scriptures. And this is Paul's direct warning to these Corinthians. Those things which stand that are recorded in the law and the prophets are God's boundaries for our lives. His word is final. We are not to exceed or go beyond what is written in the scriptures. They are our parameters. They are our boundaries. We are to not go beyond them. Just like when maybe you were growing up, you had boundaries as a kid. I remember I had boundaries as a kid within the neighborhood. I couldn't go beyond those boundaries for my safety. That's what God's word is to us as a child of God. So not to go beyond what is written, not to exceed what is in God's word. Those who do, at best, they become arrogant towards others in the faith. They begin to develop some sort of a superiority complex, and we'll see that here in the scriptures because Paul warns them. But I think even more dangerous than that, you can start to see false doctrine. You can start to see unscriptural teachings creep in to the church. 
And as a result, they take these truths of God, they pollute it with man's wisdom, they start to pair it with worldly ideas and doctrines of demons, and you get off track so quickly, and men start to gather people unto themselves versus pointing them to Christ. So when you start to go beyond what is written, when you start to go beyond God's parameters and his guideposts, it is very, very dangerous territory. Jude 12 says that they are like clouds without water. They create doctrine that fits their agenda. They're not, uh, the, these, these doctrines are not found anywhere in God's word, yet they may say that they have a greater insight. They've received a deeper enlightenment, and they take people off course and away from God, not bringing them closer to Christ, having them abide in God's word. They're abiding in their own words and their own teaching. Do not go beyond what is written. Don't exceed what is written in God's word, Paul ex- uh, explains. Just like an actor or an actress that is uh, performing a play, if all of a sudden they start ad-libbing and, and, and adding to the script, it's going to be out of place. You're going to see that all of a sudden the, the plot and the story is going one way, and then they all of a sudden exceed what is written, and, and they, they kind of add in their own ad-lib there. A musician, if all of a sudden our worship team started singing different lyrics that were up on the screen, we would start to wonder what's going on. That's not what's written on the screen. That's not what we're supposed to be singing together. And I remember in my basketball days, our coach was very clear. You stick to the game plan. This is what is written. You want to execute your own game plan, you can have a seat next to me here and have a front row seat to the game and maybe the games that will come afterwards, right? If you want to execute your own game plan, same thing with God's word. We execute his game plan. We stick to what is written. We don't add to it. We don't subtract to it. And so he says, for who considers you as superior? And maybe our uh, language, who made you the boss? Who put you in charge, right? Who, why do you think you all of a sudden have this place of superiority? So Paul gets very firm and direct with his correction to the Corinthian believers. Everything that we've received is a gift from God. They are manifestations of his loving grace. Therefore, we are always to give glory, have a, a, a heart of gratitude, a place of appreciation for what we have received from God, and not just the physical things, not just the material things that he so benevolently gives us in our lives, but the spiritual gifts that he gives us. We are never to claim that those things were something we manifested or something we somehow created in our lives. So Paul is saying, what, what makes you superior? Everything that you've been given is a gift of God. And Paul wrote about these gifts of grace in Romans chapter 12. We studied that when we were in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, he goes over the gifts of grace. He's going to address the spiritual gifts later on in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. We're going we're gonna to be there in a few weeks. But 1 Peter 4.10, I love how Peter says this in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So first of all, gifts are only gifts because they're given and they are received. Gifts are for serving others. Notice, the gifts aren't for you. They are to be received and then they're to be served for serving others. And they are, be, they are to be stewarded well and they are evidence of God's grace in our lives. And that word manifold, we've talked about it a little bit before, but that word manifold grace, it's like a variegated plant or a, a leaf on a plant. If you know what a variegated leaf looks, looks like, it has many different colors. I have an orchid that's in full bloom right now in the house, and it has all these different vibrant colors in, in, in throughout the flowers. It's variegated. It has these beautiful uh, tones and, and, and shades of color. And that's what Paul is trying to say here with the manifold grace of God, these different uh, variant colors and, 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 and splendor within God's grace. And he does that through the gifts that he bestows upon his people. 
And so each one of us has received a special gift. And it's not for you. It's to be given and stewarded in a way that is uh, serving others. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul continues in his rebuke of their pride and conceit. Remember, who made you superior? Who made you the boss? Everything that you've been given has been a gift from God. So now he says, you are already filled. You have already been, become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us, the apostles, last of all, uh, last of all as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to mankind. We are fools on account of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Up to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. Verse 12, and we labor working with our hands. When we were verbally abused, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endured it. When we were slandered, we reply as friends. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So Paul is not necessarily complimenting these Corinthians here in verse 8. He says, you are already filled, you've become rich, you have become kings. The believers in Corinth believed that they had arrived as Christians. They believed that they had reached their full maturity, their full potential, and therefore they were in a position to be the judge and the jury of others, to be superior to others. This was an indicator, ironically, of their immaturity, not their maturity in Christ. Their lack of understanding was, was mistaken in their eyes as they had a, a higher level of understanding. He says, who do you think you are, really? Who put you in charge? And then there's almost a an air of sarcasm there in the end of verse 8. And I don't know if you picked it up, but he says, I wish you had become kings or rulers. We also might reign with you. If you did become kings, hey, then we could reign together. And, but that's not the case. They thought they were in a position of ruling and reigning, reigning when they should have been in a position of meekness and humility. And Paul then begins to show them why that is the case. Because in verse 9, he starts to correct their thinking, and he's contrasting where they think they are with where they should be, and he does that through the apostles, him, his, his particular ministry and the other apostles. He says, I think, or in other translations in verse 9, it says, it seems to me, as apostles, we have not been put in a position of ruling or reigning among the brethren. Actually, it's the exact opposite. We are last of all. We are condemned to death. We are a spectacle to the world and to angels. We have been put on full display. That word spectacle is to be put on full display. And the Corinthians would know exactly what that word spectacle meant. They would know it because the, Roman, the Romans at that time, when they would go off and they would conquer another nation or another people group, they would bring that people group back to a public gathering, to a place like the Colosseum or some public gathering area, and they would make a spectacle or put those people on full display. It was an act to humiliate their opponent. It was a complete act of defeat in, in their opponent's eyes. And they were made to be theater or to be made sport of. They would put them in the Colosseum and they would release the wild animals and then they would be made sport of in that way. So the Corinthians would know exactly what Paul meant when, when he says we were, be, we were made a spectacle. Paul is purposely using this kind of twist of irony in a masterful way to drive home the air in the Corinthians' line of thinking. And he did it by, uh, because uh, he wanted to expose their immaturity. 
This was the root of why they thought the way they thought. It was their immaturity, their lack of spiritual growth. And so he says, you think you are filled, you think you are rich, you think you are kings. Think again, as apostles, as the ones sent out by God, commissioned by God to preach the gospel of Christ. We are last of all, we are condemned to death. We have been made a spectacle to the world and to angels. One of the spectacles of Paul's day during the the time of the Romans, one of the greatest spectacles of the day of anybody who dared to defy Roman rule or Roman law was crucifixion. It was used to make a public spectacle of those who dared to defy Roman law. And I believe that is why the Jewish religious leaders pushed so strongly, not just for Jesus to be incarcerated, not for him to be flogged and beaten. They pushed, they screamed, they uh, yelled at the top of the lungs, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted to make Jesus a public spectacle so that all who believed in them would have to count the cost. If you want to believe in this man and believe in what he teaches, that is what you have in store for you. So count the cost because that could be you if you continue walking and believing in this man so that everyone who followed him would have to count the cost for their faith. So indeed, Jesus was made a public spectacle, at least in the eyes of man. But this is the magnificence of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the goodness of God. It actually is the other way around. And what do I mean by that? You have to go to Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15 says something amazing. It says, When he, God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display or spectacle of them having triumphed over them through him, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? How did God disarm the rulers and authorities? And by the way, the rulers and authorities talked about here are not the political authorities or the governmental authorities. These are the spiritual authorities that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. These are the world forces of darkness. These are the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is the spiritual realm. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of the air. These are the spiritual rulers and authorities that God made a spectacle of through Christ on the cross. And how did he make a public display or a spectacle of these spiritual rulers and authorities? How did he triumph over them? He accomplished it all, accomplished it all by making, he became a spectacle for you and me, that then, therefore, through all of our sin, our shame, everything that we have done was nailed to the cross. Paul says that our certificate of debt was paid for, and as a result, it was canceled out. Imagine having a credit card maxed out, $50,000, past due 90 days. You would uh, have um, some hostile collections agencies after you. Our, our, our sin, we were, it was hostile towards us, the word says. Our certificate of debt that we had racked up, it was hostile towards us. But Christ went to the cross, paid for it in full. And as a result, he made a spectacle of the evil as a result. He took all that out of our way, placed it upon himself, and he was nailed to the cross. By Jesus make, being made a spectacle for us, he simultaneously made a spectacle of the forces of evil. He made them a public display. What appeared to be the, one of the greatest tragedies ever, an innocent, just, loving man dying an unjust death became the greatest victory ever known because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is why we're celebrating baptism tonight. When you go down in that water, that old life is now dead. That old person, that old woman, that old man is dead. And when you get raised to new life through uh, that, that uh, resurrection, if you will, through the water, that burial of that water tomb, now you are a new creation in Christ. The, your certificate of death is canceled. You are now free of debt, free of the sin, free from the law. 
And we get to take part in that victory. And that's why we celebrate so passionately with, with those who are getting water baptized. It's the evidence of what's happened inside your heart. And it's a, an outward expression of that. So getting back to our text, verse 10, Paul continues as he highlights the contrast between where the, Corinthians, the Corinthian believer's mindset was and what actually is with, uh, in terms of the apostles and, and how, what they faced in their ministry. So the apostles, he says, we were fools. The Corinthians, you were prudent or wise. He says, we are weak, you were strong. We were without honor, yet you were distinguished. Here you are in your church in a very affluent community. Remember, Corinth was a very affluent community, lots of different uh, commerce going on, uh, high agricultural uh, 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 business going on there as well. They had a, a tremendous trade route going through there. They were in a very affluent community. Yet here they are, the apostles on the front lines, going out, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and they are esteemed as fools, as weak, as without honor. And here the Corinthians are thinking they are the ones that are completely opposite. He's trying to correct their thinking. And to drive home the point even further, Paul details the hardships that the apostles not only have persevered through, but he says they are going through them at the very present hour. As he's writing this letter, they are enduring these hardships. First of all, the physical deprivations being deprived physically. They were hungry, thirsty, lacking clothing or sufficient clothing. They were roughly treated. They were homeless as a result of the ministry that they were on the front lines engaged in. They toiled working with their hands. They weren't looking for handouts. They were trying to support themselves with the work of their own hands. And then the verbal abuse. They were reviled, means being cursed. They were persecuted. Another word for that is they were harassed. They were slandered, having their reputations attacked. Their, their reputations that, that were, should be intact were being, um, were being challenged and, and, and defiled. Their response to this, they blessed those who cursed them. They endured the harassment. They consoled those or answered kindly to those who slandered them, who slandered their name, slandered their reputation. You can only do that if you're walking in the spirit. Because if you, re if you get reviled in the flesh, what do you want to do? You want to revile in return. And if they revile you at 8, you want to revile back at 12. And if they revile at 15, now next thing you know, this thing is escalating out of control. If somebody slanders you, wants to attack your reputation, I'll see you in court. Right? There, there's this give and take when you're in the flesh. But Paul says, we are men of God. We are in the spirit. We're serving with humility and meekness. And as a result, when somebody reviles us, we don't respond with, re respond with reviling black, back. We bless. <laughs> we don't persecute back. We are the ones that endure it. And those who are attacking our character, we console those. We answer kindly in return. It can only be when you're walking in the Spirit. It can only be when Christ is the, the, at the forefront of your life and you're seeking to serve Him and you've crucified yourself, you've crucified your flesh, and you've taken up your cross and are following after Him daily. And then the apex or the height of Paul, uh, Paul's description comes in verse 13. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. When I was 16 years old, I worked at my mom's refinery. She worked in the, in the office, but there was a big refinery that would do asphalt refining. They would, they would take the crude oil and it would, it would refine it and do whatever it did. And, but then there's this runoff and it was this uh, rectangular pit and I would have to skim off the, the impurities. It smelled like sulfur and there was this like scum that would develop. It was like a, a burnt orange. It had a putrid smell. And I just remember having to scrape this stuff off into another container. It was the most disgusting thing. That's the picture I got when Paul says, we became the scum of the world. 
the dregs of all things. The dregs are, if you, if have you ever seen fruit juice or maybe even wine, the, the, the pulp and all of the, the uh, parts of the, the plant or the fruit that kind of fall to the bottom. It's very bitter and it, it's not enjoyable at all. It says, we became the dregs of all things. So Paul's getting extremely real here. He's serving up a large reality check for the Corinthians. You think you are in a place of superiority. You think you have arrived as a Christian. Therefore, you put yourself in a position to judge others. Listen, that is, you're so far from reality. Here's the real deal. People that are on the front lines, planning churches, preaching Christ, this is what they're going through. And so he says all of that not to, uh, not to uh, uh, admonish them, not to... Um, shame them. He says that as a father, and we're going to see that in verses 14 through 17. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For in you, for if you, excuse me, were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul's speaking not like in Catholicism, where the priest is considered a father. He's, he's saying that I became your father in the faith. Remember, I spent 18 months here planting this church. I raised you in the scriptures. I brought you to the faith. I raised you in the ways of God. I invested myself in this church. And so therefore, there's like this father-son, father-daughter relationship. He taught them about uh, the crucifixion and, 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 and uh, Christ and him crucified. And so he refers to them as beloved children. He reminds them that he is the father. Uh, he, he became their father through the gospel. And he says, you have many instructors, many tutors. We saw that word back in Romans where the law became our tutor. It, it's like a, a guide uh, that would, or, or a, an instructor or a chaperone for young boys back in this time, uh, a, a uh, a slave would uh, oversee these young boys and make sure that they were chaperoned out in, uh, in the community, make sure they didn't get in trouble, that they were behaving correctly and whatnot until they came of the age of, of manhood. So Paul says, you have many of these types of instructors. You have many instructors in the word of God, but you don't have many fathers. I became a father to you in through the gospel. And so he almost kind of has this, I, I kind of envision like this Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker moment, like, uh, I am your father. I am your father in the faith. And as a result, there, there's this like birthing process, right? And this relationship is unique. It's not a brother to brother or sister to sister where there's accountability and, and, and such. It's more about, yes, there's accountability, but I have spiritual authority. I've raised you in the faith, so therefore there's, there's a spiritual authority to this relationship. And I am doing this to correct you. There's corrective measures involved here. Paul, in his, in his motive of saying this, is sticking to what he says in Colossians when he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. He's not trying to shame them. He's not trying to get them to lose heart in their faith. He's trying to correct their thinking because they're in dangerous ground. They're immature in their faith. I'm admonishing you or I'm warning you or exhorting you as a father. And so he wants them to imitate him. He says, imitate me. He reiterates this in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and he takes it a step further. He says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. So yes, imitate me, but I am of Christ. I am following in Christ's footsteps, so therefore follow in my footsteps. And if you are a father or a mother in here, you want your children hopefully to follow in your footsteps. But hopefully our footsteps are going down the right path. 
And so we think about how our kids witness and see everything we say, we do. And so are we the men and women we want our children to become or to aspire to be? So therefore, we have to ensure not only if if they're going to follow in our footsteps, that they're following in the footsteps down the narrow path of righteousness. And so that's what Paul is saying. Follow after me. Imitate me. In a spiritual context, we have the ability and capacity to be a father or a mother in the faith to somebody. Pastor Brad, how many of you, Pastor Brad would be your father in the faith? Yeah. And, and I know Pastor Brad was, uh, has been gone for you know, some time now, retired, but he was faithful pastor, senior pastor here for 38 years. I came to faith at Calvary Chapel West Grove in 2000, grew up in God's word under his faithful teaching every Sunday, every Wednesday night. He baptized me on a night just like this. He married Maria and I. He dedicated both of our children. He conducted other weddings and memorial services within our family. And then kind of the cherry on top is he ordained me into the ministry. He checks all of the boxes as a father in the faith to me. And so I know there's women in the church that do the very same thing. They take young women and bring them through the scriptures. And it's more than just discipling. It's nurturing them in the faith, rearing them up, training them up for the ministry. And we all have that ability to do those things in God's word and in, in, in service to him. And in proof of that, he says, I'm going to, I've sent you Timothy. Paul then says, in order to give you kind of a prime example, I'm going to send you my son in the faith. It's not his son biologically. I'm going to send you my son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy is faithful. He will remind you of my ways, he says, which are in Christ. Last week, Pastor Brandon did a marvelous job of teaching out of Philippians, and he talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus and the qualities and characteristics they had as laborers in Christ. And Timothy, a couple quick just reminders, is he possessed genuine concern for the brethren. He displayed proven character, a proven godly character. He had a tremendous heart for spreading the gospel. And he was there at a moment's notice. He was always available at a moment's notice to tend to the needs of others. He learned all of that through Paul. He imitated Paul in those ways. So Paul refers to Timothy as the indicator of his every intention of returning. I sent Timothy. I have every intention in returning because there are some who have become arrogant in verse 18. They've become skeptical that Paul's not going to return. And Paul says this, and he addresses this here, and we'll close. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God is not words, but in power. What do you desire, that I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? These three verses, I kind of fell back in love with Paul. He just kind of tells it as it is. That's why I love the word of God. You know, the word of God doesn't sugarcoat anything. It doesn't cover anything up. The church in Corinth is a bit messy, and so it's not a perfect church by any means, nor is any church, but there, I love Paul. He's it, telling it like, his, like it is. He goes, you know, some of you have become arrogant. They've become publicly opposed to Paul, and there's scriptures throughout First and Second Corinthians where they make evident that they're trying to undermine his authority, that they're saying Paul is unstable in his thinking, and that the messages of his letters were not uh, powerful or with, they were without importance. So there, he had his detractors. He had his opposition. But he says, um, he states, you know, if the Lord wills, I will come and I will come soon. And when I do, he will find out where the real power is. 
He's going to find out those who are arrogant in this way. He's going to find out if their words have any power because he says, in our vernacular, talk is cheap. (laughs) He's saying, the kingdom of God is not about talk. The kingdom of God is not words, but it is in power. Those who teach false doctrine, those who start to divide the church for their own sake, for their own uh, reasons, those who promote unscriptural teachings, they're just all talk. The real power of the kingdom of God is it comes in the teaching and the, the living in, the resurrection and being in Christ. So Paul, like a good parent, gives his children a choice, gives them ownership over the, their decisions. I don't know if you've ever done this as a parent. I'll give you guys a decision. I'm, I can come with a rod or I can come in a spirit of gentleness and in love. I can, you, can, you can choose one or the other. I'm going to come with the rod. I can come heavy-handed and I will do so if I have to or I will come in love with the spirit of gentleness. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 11, he basically says, I'm a man of my word. He says, what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are indeed when present. Basically saying, what I write, I back up in how I act. So I just, I'm not a keyboard warrior. I'm not a social media warrior. <laughs> I'm not on my, on my uh, iPhone acting all tough. I'm not writing my letters to, to kind of puff myself and act tougher than what I am. What I say is what I mean. And so when I come, whatever I have written, I will back up indeed in, in my actions. And so the choice is yours, Corinthians. What would you rather have? So Paul has finished addressing the Corinthians on this issue of division. And he's going to now trans, uh, transition a bit to chapters 5 and 6 into the sexual immorality issue that had now cropped up within the church. So again, if you could imagine Paul, the founder of this church, spent 18 months planting this church, pouring his life into this church. He's getting reports back that there's all these divisions and factions going on as a result of their their strife, their jealousies, their immaturity. And now he's going to have to address this sexual immorality issue that has popped up within the church, a couple different issues actually. And they are such that not even the Gentiles are engaging in them. These are, are, are those who pro- proclaim a profession uh, uh, in Christ. They are uh, Christ followers, and yet they are engaged in, in things that the Gentiles don't even do. So that's what he now has to address in chapters 5 and 6, and he does it very, very beautifully. So.